Welcome to episode three of the Behavior Breakdown, the big business behind private equity-backed ABA companies. For those of you who are just joining us for the first time, welcome. My name's Lynette Elizabeth, and I'm your host. The Behavior Breakdown is a podcast about everything applied behavior analysis, including tough topics, the business behind ABA, an overall place for resources for clinicians, parents, and anybody who's just interested in listening. Today on the Behavior Breakdown, we were able to sit down with Chris Larson, a reporter for Behavioral Health Business. Behavioral Health Business is an independent source for breaking news and up-to-date information on the mental health and addiction recovery industry. They focus on covering the trends, ideas, and people shaping the future of all these industries. Chris has a bachelor's degree in communication from Brigham Young University and has been covering the behavioral health sector since December of 2016. And he was gracious enough to sit down and talk to us about private equity and value-based care in the field of behavior analysis. To reach out to Chris directly, you can find his contact information in the show notes below. So let's jump right into my conversation with Chris, beginning with why I started this podcast and how I ran across his articles throughout my research. So I initially designed this podcast to be a source for families and for clinicians to have a place to find resources for a lot of common topics that come up in applied behavior analysis. During my production of the first couple episodes was when we were experiencing all the mass layoffs that were occurring in our field. And so that turned my attentions into looking up research regarding what was going on in our industry. And time and time again, I kept running across your articles. And so I decided to reach out to see if you could give us any more insight as to what's going on in our field regarding private equity and value-based care. I gotcha. And so where would you like to start? Let's start with where... You started tracking all of the private equity concepts that started entering our market, or if it's applicable, you know, into the behavioral health market in general. Um, it seems like that might have preceded ABA. I gotcha. So private equity has looked at behavioral health as an investment opportunity for for decades, and in varying capacities, companies have decided to make their entry into investing into these companies to give them the capital that they need to expand their operations, to make changes, to be more efficient. You can kind of think of private equity as the fuel that goes into the engine to power the growth of, you know, for-profit ventures, you know, even from the smallest individual practitioner, you know, with their one office in a strip mall, all the way up to, you know, multi-billion dollar operations that have offices all over the country. At the end of the day, both of them need capital to function. And even if you look at a nonprofit provider, they still need to generate profits and they still have capital needs to execute on their mission. In a previous role, I used to actually cover the nonprofit industry specifically. And a cliche that you would hear all the time is if there's no margin, there's no mission. So while private equity has had an interesting and notable influence in the behavioral health space over the last 20 years, especially, and we're seeing this accelerated in the last 10 and even two years, the they're filling a very specific need that behave, that exists in behavioral health while at the same time trying to foment opportunities for themselves and for the investors that give their money to these private equity funds in the first place. 
what was the driving force, I guess, behind private equity wanting to be in ABA? You know, so I know we started seeing just like this mass acquisition of all these ABA companies, you know, within the last 10 or 15 years. I guess, what did they see in ABA? What what need are they filling, at least in their perspective of making these companies, you know, a lot bigger than they used to be? They're all very small, privately owned, you know, BCBA owns it. Now we're starting to see these large companies emerged with tens, twenties, thirties of offices, you know, all over the country. What need do they think that they're fulfilling? So ABA is similar to a lot of healthcare investments in the fact that it's something that has high demand and growing demand for services. Mm -hmm. It's also similar to other healthcare ventures in the perception that it's resistant to uh, recessions or downturns in the economy. Mm-hmm. Private equity firms are looking for places to put money that will help that investment grow or will be in a situation where that investment will become something more than what it started off with. So healthcare has always been a place where there's lots of demand. It's always, it's always in need regardless of how good the economy is doing. And with ABA specifically, there was increasing demand for services for the treatment of autism specifically and especially. So over the course of, I'll call it about 15 years, advocates within the autism space had been pushing and pushing insurance companies and state houses to mandate that health insurance plans require some portion of ABA services. This was a huge boon for ABA providers specifically because a lot of times they couldn't actually get reimbursement from health plans Mm -hmm. for providing this vital service to kids who definitely needed it to have a fulfilling life. More often than not, they were banking on things like speech therapy or occupational therapy, and the service that they gave in the ABA intervention was just completely uncompensated. So that was money that they were missing out on or not putting on the table because of the uh, payer environment at the time. But as that changed, Operators in the healthcare space realize that, hey, we can actually have a viable business where we can actually make some money doing this, but also help more families doing this instead of having a very narrow focus on that occupational and speech therapy line of business. Similarly, private equity investors realize the same thing, that there's this growing need. There's this new opportunity for these ventures to grow, to be more expansive Mm -hmm. and to reach out to more people. So they realized that they could put capital into these companies and these companies could grow and they eventually could make their exit as they grew these businesses to get a return on their investment. Where do you see their exit strategy going? You know, you might see like those secondary sales to maybe another investment company, um, you know, and it might mill around that for a little while. But we were somewhat trying to speculate what the final exit strategy would be. Is there a trend in other industries where private equity has like made an exit or are we still mid seeing where that goes? I mean, we're we're still trying to see where that goes. Each private equity firm has its own objective and its own goal. So it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to say in the big picture and in the aggregate where the private equity role will end up when it comes to the ABA space and the autism treatment space. The simplest answer is that these private equity firms find someone else to buy or buy out their stake in these uh, ABA providers. Uh-huh. In in concept, it's really simple. They made this investment, they own X percentage, and now after however many years and after however many times over the company has grown, that stake is now worth, hopefully, more than what the initial investment was. And the simplest thing for them to do would just be to sell it to another investor who would lead it through its next phase of growth. 
Mm, okay. Would it be too simplistic to say that some of these companies that are doing layoffs are just trying to build a valuation? Or do we think that there's just some of those extenuating factors like COVID and, and, you know, a lot of the other areas where maybe they didn't troubleshoot quite as much, you know, like our high turnover, you know, not being able right now hiring is just horrible. (laughs) There's no one out there that, you know, really wants to kind of take these part-time jobs. So do you think they kind of just like jump the gun or is this just kind of the standard of what typically happens? Yeah, I would I would actually have a hard time drawing a direct connection between trying to inflate evaluation and the layoffs that we saw. Yeah. That's not to say that they're completely and totally disconnected. Yeah. Every every executive at one of these companies or every private equity manager who's partnering with these executives want the company to be more valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of reasons for that. You know, obviously the overarching reason is that everybody has to be a good fiduciary of the financial resources at their disposal. But what we can, I think, more correctly say about the specific and more immediate reasons why we saw these layoffs were around issues of profitability. Hmm. So a lot of these organizations grew really fast. A lot of them hired a lot of staff. A lot of them added a lot of offices, tried to expand into new markets, and they did that through opening their own offices, or they did that through buying smaller practices and trying to fold them in. Now, in concept, that's not a bad idea. That's actually... That's your bread and butter on how to take a small company Mm -hmm. with an initial private equity investment and then turn it into something more than what it was before. Mm -hmm. But when the rubber meets the road, you (laughs) run into all kinds of potential problems on the execution of your plan. So we actually have heard at Behavior Health Business from the CEO of 360 Behavior Health who said, you know, at some level, these bigger ABA providers have to get a little smarter about where they're putting their resources. Mm You can't just open an office, put a BCBA there and expect everybody in that area to come flocking to your office, especially if you maybe didn't quite get your research right. And there's a great ABA that's already in that neighborhood that kind of dominates that 10 square mile or whatever your metric is for trying to understand a hyper local market. Then there are also pressures that you address that are definitely at play. The high turnover of RBTs is definitely something that is a problem that is, I think, really hard to solve. Related to that, wage inflation is putting pressure on the bottom line. And when you're talking about an ABA venture, and this is actually true for most healthcare ventures, your greatest source of expense is the salaries that you're paying to providers. So if you're looking at ways to try to cut down your expenses, you really don't have a whole lot of places you can do that without potentially laying people off. It's not like an ABA provider can rent out or lease a cheaper x-ray machine. That's not applicable. You can't make a vendor change and save X percent on your supplies costs. It's all about the people in so many different ways. And that's true for so many aspects of behavioral health, not just the dollars and cents of it all. Yeah. Truths like that even seep into the actual execution of the care itself that makes patients and their families want to come back. It impacts how these organizations hold on to or struggle to hold on to talent. Yeah. You brought up a good point, too, which is one of the first points you made about an ABA company that already exists in the space that has dominated the market. And it's funny just being on the ground with families. I do intakes. So it's primarily what I do. So I'm seeing them like when they first come into our agency and they shop. <laughs> they shop around, you know, and I, I think a lot of their 
their conversation is just word of mouth from other people. You know, I have tons of families that'll talk to other parents when they're doing pickup and drop offs at schools. And it's, hey, go to this company, hey, go to that company. And, you know, it's not as easy as just like kind of funneling in to a space because it's there. It's not like, well, this, you know, urgent care is close to me. So I'm going to go to that one. It's very much connecting with other parents, connecting with other providers, connecting with other people that are just telling them what the better places are. And, and they may be very resistant to going to a new place. You know, these, these people are in their house 20, 30, 40 hours a week, you know, they're, they're gonna, they're gonna shop. So I'm curious if that was like a big underestimation of where need is. If one or two companies are really, really popular in a certain area or, or really effective, yeah, they may be resistant to going to another place. I know a lot of families that'll stay somewhere, even though it's terrible, but just because they're familiar with the people. So that's interesting. But going back to how private equity is expanding in our space, is it slowing at all? Or do we see that they're still kind of entering those secondary and tertiary buyouts where they're going to keep going? Or have we seen it slow because of some of these factors? And maybe these places are taking a step back to reevaluate maybe how fast they're going to expand? One of the biggest indicators that we have out there that private equity is still going, are just looking at the basic volume of investment and placements. So as you've noted in previous podcast episodes, and we've written about, the BRAF group has noted Mm -hmm. a significant increase in the number of placements over the last several years, especially starting around 2015, the number just shot up. And it's remained high in 2020 and 2021 with, I think, about the same number of overall investments. Mm -hmm. Now, from that, I don't think we can really intuit you know, kind of where the bulk of these investments are at in terms of looking for their you know, tertiary placements or their, you know, for their exits. I think that most of these investments still are in a holding period. Mm-hmm. But once we get into 2023, 24 and 2025, we're starting to get into that five, six, seven year range, which is a standard holding period for a lot of private equity placements. At that point, we'll, we might, be seeing some sales and some other private equity investors wanting to take that. So there might be a phase where private equity investors will kind of start, you know, buying and selling these firms, you know, at different valuations, depending on the progress of those investments. Most of the time, these investments, when there's a changing of hands between investors, comes with additional capital to further fuel the growth and expansion mm-hmm. of these private equity back, you know, firms. And this is true just in, in private equity generally. Very rarely in healthcare do you see private equity firms looking to buy a healthcare asset and then, you know, kind of do what has what I'm most familiar with and we've seen in like newsprint media where they're just trying to literally squeeze every last bit of profitability out of it as it slowly dies. Yeah. Because of like what I've talked about, the dynamics around healthcare being a recession resistant investment, always massive high demand. And what is kind of unique, I think, to ABA specifically, but generally to behavioral health, is there's such a massive imbalance between the available supply and the enormously many times larger demand for the services. So when you look at that dynamic, you can definitely and safely say that behavioral health is in a place where more capital is needed, where more growth is needed. Because right now in behavioral health generally, in ABA specifically, we're not anywhere close to actually meeting the need and meeting the demand. And the demand is still growing as people get over the stigma of mental illness 
And as we become more sensitive to detecting the early signs of autism, especially in youth, and one of the things that we haven't seen as much investment in, I'm personally, I'm looking for Mm -hmm. and trying to understand more is how ABA providers or other related behavior health providers support these children as they grow up. Mm -hmm. You don't cure autism. That's one of the, that's one of the great problems of behavioral health generally is that these conditions are lifelong and they require special support throughout a person's life to ensure that they can be as fulfilled as possible. So one of the open questions in my mind is what's going to happen to these children as they begin to age out of what their benefits, either through a commercial plan or through a state Medicaid plan, will be able to provide them. I don't have a good answer on that. I just, that's one, like I said, that's one of the things I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. So if there is anybody you know, actually listening who knows where this is going, I'd love to learn more about it and tell more people about what's going to happen in, let's just say, 10 years from now when the eight-year-old who is in these services now or the six or the six-year-old becomes 18 and 16 and they're in school and maybe looking at only having a few years left of being covered by these plans, these health plans that they get these benefits through. I think there are resources out there that do tackle some of that. And that's actually some of the biggest questions that I get not necessarily on the onset of services because they're so wrapped up in just what's happening right in that moment when they have, you know, a toddler and they're trying to get through that. But definitely as we start moving into that phasing out period, it's very sensitive. It's very nerve wracking because in a lot of cases we've been the provider and we've been in their house for a decade, you know, I mean, we've been with them for so long, you know, and we kind of become that crutch, so to speak, where we're always there to kind of help troubleshoot issues. But there does come a point where you you do kind of have that phase out. And I think initially that's what I, you know, wanted to kind of develop this podcast for, where it's like, there's resources out there, but the lack of ease for families to find it is an issue in our field. You know, it's there. You know, it there there's things that come after ABA. There's things that do transition into services that are there and more longstanding and there for, for longer periods of time. I think there's this balance where, you know, clinically ABA is trying to have these periods of time where we work on some of the behavioral issues that are creating problems in learning, problems with adaptive living, problems with a client being able to live a fulfilled life. And that can come and go. And I think that that's where ABA is really trying to take a niche in their life. But families fear losing that because the original perspective of ABA was kind of this lifelong service prior to um, actually what you were talking about when insurance companies started coming into the into the space prior to that it was really state funded you know you get five or ten hours and it's just forever you know and that's kind of how ABA operated and then after the insurance started coming into ABA you started seeing just a shift in the mentality of of what we addressed and how long we were there. But ultimately, a lot of what I wanted to bring up in this podcast was where and how to find this information. And it is there, you know, there there are things that come afterwards. There's a lot of adult programs, a lot of adult facilitation. Um, you know, I have a couple colleagues that work in that type of environment or have an interest or have developed a lot of resources, but there's really no collaboration across everybody. It's that one person that maybe has a 
network of people where maybe the people around them understand it, but where does where does a family go to really access what does my life look like when that child turns 18? So that's definitely on the horizon of topics. So if anyone's listening and has an interest or has some information or initiatives that they want to talk about, by all means, we are all ears. So getting back into private equity and value-based care, do you think that you could expand a little bit on what value-based care is? So there's basically two tenets of value-based care generally. You're looking for a payment arrangement that leads to better outcomes for patients, but also does that in a financially responsible and successful way. And there is this basic belief behind value-based care that if you are able to align the incentives of the insurer, but also the provider in the right way, you can accomplish all of those things. Right. However, there's been limited application of value-based care and behavioral health. The biggest reason that is, is because we're still trying to figure out exactly what is valuable. How do you measure it? How do you make those assessments? What is it worth in terms of the dollars and cents? And even bigger than that, we don't really see a lot of behavioral health providers even having the capability of executing on a value-based care arrangement where there would be some kind of responsibility on the part of the provider to measure the impact and the outcomes of their care. For example, you know, there's a report that we have on behavioral health business that tells us that only about 6% of behavioral health providers actually use an electronic health record. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit of a travesty, especially in comparison to the rest of the healthcare system where you're seeing rates of 90 and 80% adoption of electronic health records. Yep. These tools are the means or the foundation by which you can actually do this kind of more sophisticated stuff. But if you have the bulk of your behavioral health operators still using clipboards and filing systems, there's no way that you can get the data that you need to show the value and to show the impact of the care that a behavioral health provider is actually giving to their insurance partners, giving to their clients. So that's one of the reasons why we don't see wide adoption of value-based care. The other one is just the scale issue that we have between insurers and behavioral health operators. There's been a ton of consolidation in health insurance over the last 30 years or so. And, you know, like the top five uh, operators in this space dominate most of the market. However, behavioral health is not at all consolidated. It's and that's actually one of the reasons why private equity is interested in the space because they think that they can actually create something more valuable by going through and you know buying up and professionalizing these practices to make something bigger than just the sum of the parts. So these insurers have thousands on thousands of behavioral health providers on their roles. And it's really not in their best interest to do one-off deals with each and every single yeah. one of them. They want to try to develop a model that they can roll out and that everybody can plug into. But how do you do that? How do you do that across specialties? How do you do that where there are significant regional differences in the needs and the impact of certain types of specialties or certain types of therapies? Even if you were, find some kind of magic model that's widely applicable, you still need to get providers to buy into it. Now, there's lots of providers you know, that I'm sure are listening to this that are forward thinking and are like, you know, value-based care, yes, sign me up, I would love to. But there is this tendency in healthcare for providers especially to be resistant to change. And I don't blame them. If you have to go through the years of work and the years of education and pay out you know, huge sums to get the education, 
I think you have earned a right to be skeptical of anybody that wants to come in and make changes to the way that you practice your science and the way that you practice your craft. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you know, that being said, I'm trying to argue, you know, kind of articulate what I've seen pretty clearly is that a lot of behavioral health operators don't like being told what to do. So if you have an insurer that already not necessarily seen as the good guy in the dynamic between payer and provider, and they're coming in saying, hey, we have the solution to this problem, I can very easily see where a lot of behavioral health providers are going to be skeptical about adopting new models. I mean, the fee-for-services model is very easy to understand. Mm-hmm. A person gets paid X amount of dollars for, for providing Y service. So if you're putting together something that heavily deviates from the norm, and it's coming from the side of the business where there's already a lot of skepticism, you know, I could definitely see some problems you know, rolling it out. Yeah, and I think being on the clinical side of it, there's there's some providers which are going to be resistant to it anyway. You know, there's always that ethical consideration that they take into it where it's like, how is this going to affect what we're providing as a service? And I think idealistically, I think value-based care sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, I personally enjoy what we do as far as trying to measure outcomes. You know, I'm going to go into it a little bit further as far as what's going on out there as far as our standard of it. But I think that also becomes the the biggest issue for clinicians because, you know, our field is predicated on each client has an individual program. And I think finding that balance between how do you evaluate outcomes as a population versus evaluating outcomes as, you know, a single case. I know there's a lot of that debate just among clinicians, but for reimbursement purposes, I mean, it seems more reasonable for an insurance company to be like, here, like, make sure that this client gets good service, make sure that this client makes progress and has outcomes. I would much rather my job be to do that and know that my clients are making progress rather than kind of getting hounded for that, like, okay, you need to bill an hour to get an hour. And sometimes it doesn't translate always into something needed or effective. It's just you have to be there in order to bill for things, even though my, not preference, but like my clinical experience may guide me to be like, but I need to go talk to the teacher and something like that's not covered currently under a fee-for-service model. But that might be what I need to go do is to go coordinate with that speech therapist or that occupational therapist. So, I mean, I see the value in the value-based care model that way where the limitations lift a little bit as far as how we are able to conduct our job with different clients. But, you know, I can see how putting together these standardization benchmarks is just, it's a task, <laughs> you know, provider runs so differently. So I see their, I see their resistance, but you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see where it goes moving forward. You know, I think it's coming no matter what. I think insurance is going that direction. I think they're going to push it in that direction. And I think providers are either going to have to kind of jump on board or like you said, it's not really valuable for an insurance company to do these one-off contracts with an agency when they could do something predictable and just the same for these large organizations. So with both of those two components, so private equity, you know, trying to create like these big networks to potentially move into that value-based care system, what do you predict or what do you see or just what's your anecdotal thought on what the ABA space holds for the future? I mean, do you see it booming? Do you see just a lot of growing pains? Do you see massive success? <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely see, you know, universes where, where all of those apply. I can definitely see how the pains that we're experiencing right now will maybe set up some of these operators to be more successful in the future. 
I can also see where the growth will continue. These big operators will continue to consolidate. We might even see new entrants you know, into the ABA space that are making similar plays to what we see through the more established, bigger operators out there. Just to name a few, like Card, Hopebridge, being two that just happen to come to mind at the moment. But, you know, even with all of the potential pains that the industry is going through, we're looking at an acceleration and an expansion of ABA. We're seeing ABA being taken from what it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, however long you want, wherever you want to put that marker where it was underappreciated and inaccessible to becoming widely accessible and coming to the point where it's not a question of if you'll be able to access an ABA provider as a consumer. The question is now which ABA provider you'll be able to get services from. And that's a change in dynamic that would not have been possible were it not for changes in the payer environment, were it not for investors saying there is an opportunity to serve more people here while at the same time growing this business into something more than what it was before. So if you were to take private equity out of the equation completely, ABA would still be a small, very specialized, hyper-localized and overall inaccessible service that it was 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I think that that's, and that's one of the, our biggest values too. I mean, in ABA, I mean, we always joke, we're like, we're trying to save the world and it's, you know, we can't, you can't do that if you can't reach into all those different spaces. And, you know, we used to get people that would come to Southern California because we had ABA and they wanted care for, for their child. So. Yeah. And I want to like add just kind of one more thought, Sure. you know, there's, there's a ton of frustration over what is happening and what the dynamics are and the incentives are for these private equity backed operators. You know, at the end of the day, their purpose is to is to turn a profit and to be good fiduciaries of financial resources. But that's not unique to ABA, nor is that unique to any business. That's yeah. capitalism, mm-hmm. period. So if you want to argue some kind of critique around what private equity is doing to the ABA space, You also need to be prepared to critique capitalism generally, which is a much harder argument to make, seeing as how that is how our society has been in the United States since its beginning, Mm -hmm. while at the same time trying to advocate for what the alternative would be. And those are difficult conversations because we don't have historically, you know, a ton of, you know, things to kind of pull on and look at that give us great examples for what that might look like in the future, especially if you're going to use ABA, where pre-application of the tools of capitalism, it was a service that really wasn't available to the masses. You had to be in the right state or the right neighborhood to get it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think um, time's up here, but I really, really appreciate you being on with us. So much for for considering me for uh, the podcast. If you need anything else, just let me know. I very much appreciate your insight and I will continue looking for your articles. It definitely guides my research and then, you know, kind of sends me off on my topics. So definitely more to come and definitely more of your articles on my horizon. Sounds good. Hey, you have a great day. Take care. You. you too. Thanks everyone for tuning into this episode of the Behavior Breakdown. As always, go to your favorite podcast streaming service and make sure to follow us. You can also find us on Instagram, Patreon, LinkedIn, and YouTube under the handle The Behavior Breakdown. Until next time, thank you and have a great week. Deep in the forest, the queen of the honeybees is making a stand. And I want to be there. It's going to be grand. And I want to be there. Go
Carry on. So I guess I'll carry on.